Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here on yet another glorious, sunny morning, perfect for cricket here in Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller in south-east London, where the conditions would have my old newspaper saying, Phew, what a scorcher. It's hotter than the south of France. Today we're going to follow up one of the major themes from this year's Wisdom, which was covered so well, Black Lives Matter and the issue of racism in cricket. We've got a fascinating guest with a powerful story to tell. We're delighted to have with us, honoured to have with us, Lonsdale Skinner. Lonsdale was formerly Surrey's wicketkeeper in the 1970s. He also kept wicket for Guyana, the Shell Shield. But in, um, since 2013, he's been chairman of the African Caribbean Cricket Association, which has campaigned for fair treatment of African Caribbean people in cricket and to encourage them to excel in cricket. A very, very important cause. Lonsdale, thank you very much for being with us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. For somebody who loves cricket and um, knows how much the West Indian, Afro-Caribbean population has brought to cricket in this country, actually, I can remember the, you know, those wonderful West Indies teams of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and the early black players who broke their way, you know, into the England team. The fact that, they, that they've gone away almost uh, is something which causes us, as cricket lovers, awful grief. Well, indeed. Um so I'd like to begin, though, by asking a little bit about your own background and your own entry into cricket. Uh, you were born in Guyana. Uh, I think you read that you came to England as a child. I was 11 years old when I went, when, when I, I was taken away from Guyana by my parents. I didn't have a say. If I did, I wouldn't have been here. Huh. <laughs> I'm interested in where you learnt your cricket. Was it primarily in Guyana or in, or in England? Yes, as a little boy, we played the game. I played with men, grown men. Mm-hmm. Uh, was toughened me up a little bit. Uh, you learn to take your knocks, your bruises, whatever, and you played. Um, it's like so. my idol Gary Sobers. He he learned. Well, that's that's the way we did in the Caribbean. Then I don't know what they do now, but yeah. um, it was free and easy. You played. You played to whoever wanted to play with you. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk a little bit too about the social barriers against playing cricket, which is why I'm asking my next question, Lonsdale. Did you have a school cricket team in England? Um, when you came came over to England, did you say, I think, 11? Yes. When I came, I went to two schools. I went to Sacre Modern School in Ballum, and then I left there after two or three years, and I went to a comprehensive school in Tooting. The, the, the Sacre Modern School had very few facilities, whereas the comprehensive school had more or less everything we needed. It even had uh, some nets in, in the grounds of the schools. Mm. You know? They had uh, changing rooms, they had a swimming pool, and they had some good teachers. We, we did have a school team, but we didn't play regular school cricket. However, the school did send me to uh, trials to London schools. My father took me to, uh, it was the LCC uh, uh, Education Centre. They gave me a test, which as I got older, I, re- I realised how ridiculous it was. <laughs> they were asking me everything about England, which I just arrived, which I wouldn't have known. Anyway, I lasted out and I uh, when I moved to the, the, the comprehensive school, they put that right. Good. I was playing for uh, two age groups for London schools in the same year. Mm. I was playing for the first year and the second year. Interesting. 
good summer. Did you play any club cricket as a, as a teenager? Yeah, most of my club cricket mm-hmm. was played with Carnegie Cricket Club, which I am now the chairman of. Oh. Yeah, and I've always been with them. Good. Uh, I wasn't, it must be remembered that when I started playing cricket, the big white clubs, you know, want of a better word, they weren't taking the likes of me into their membership. And people have a tendency to forget that. And I think it wasn't until the 1968 Race Relations Act. They had a colored bar. They just did not take us as members. Mm-hmm. And I can remember clearly when um, the sort of older guys got into a white, big white club, it was like winning the pools. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yes. The games that we played, it was mostly out of London. We had to travel every Saturday and Sunday. And we'll probably go to the village green somewhere where they welcomed us. And it was like a, a dear celebration for them because we bought something different. And then, of course, they also brought money because at the end of the match, they drink the bar out and we head <laughs> back for London. <laughs> but it also has to remember that most of these players were doing, uh, they worked very hard during the week. So those two days was for enjoyment. And didn't, they, didn't we enjoy it? Yeah, but the games are nearly all out of London. We traveled, we traveled Saturday, we traveled Sunday. By the time you got back home, it will be 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night. Well, mm. yeah. well actually, Richard and my uh, travelling teams were a bit like that too. <laughs> we, but, but not of the same standard. <laughs> what, different standard and the other different thing. There were no facilities for you. No, my, uh, my club, there's still a wonder inside. Uh, we made one attempt about five years ago and uh, we were given the opportunity to rent our cricket ground in Tooting. And we were paying £125 per game. And the following year, we were told in March that the fee will go up to £250 per game. Now, you know, within a month, we have to find £125 more per game. And we couldn't do that. Mm. So we have to go back to being a wandering side. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a very and it's a formidable barrier to playing cricket for a lot of clubs, isn't it? I mean, it's the actual cost of playing, the cost of actually just getting to a pitch at all is becoming prohibitive. Well, it's already becoming prohibitive. How did you break into the Surrey team? I was a regular visitor to, to Gover's Cricket School in Wandsworth. Huh. You know, uh, we went there in numbers. Friday night, Saturday during the day, and Sunday during the day, we were there in numbers. That's where, especially during the, during the winter, that's where you learned your cricket, by sitting mm. and chatting. And in the school, there was an Australian named Jim Workman. And Jim saw me and he, he told me that uh, somebody from Surrey will be in contact with you tomorrow, Monday at 7 o'clock. Sure they did. Mm. And from then it went on. I could have been about 14 years old when that occurred. Right. Now, this is the Gover Cricket School. Mm. We spent hundreds of thousands of pounds at Gover Cricket School. But Gover never recommended one of the players from that cricket school to Surrey or elsewhere. I only got through because of this guy, Jim Workman, Australian, who was a regular coach at Gover. Yeah? Really? Gover did not rep- recommend one Afro-Caribbean cricketer to any county. Is that right? I'm astonished. Yes, it is very true. You can check the records. In Surrey, in Surrey I was the second one. Mm. I was the second Afro-Caribbean player at Surrey. The first one was a guy named Derris Marriott. Yes. He used to play for Carnegie, but to get to Surrey, he had to go and play for Mitchum Cricket Club. They accepted him and a guy named Eaton Swaby to play for them. 
I know Elbrook, who's himself in London, how proud they were to get the place in Mitchum on the green. Mm-hmm. And Dennis went, I think he spent three summers at Surrey, and um, he left. And the year after, I I was uh, taken on by Arthur McIntyre. Yo, sorry, an England wicketkeeper. That's right. Yeah. When I went to Alf Govers, he was actually um, coaching a young Andy Roberts. <laughs> and I been coaching actually... for long. I remember that yeah. too. Yes, I actually faced I... it over from Andy Roberts. And well, my... Andy Roberts and Vivian Richards came up here during the, mi- the winter. They must have come mm. here for four weeks, right? Yeah. Mm. Uh, and I could remember in the next of Crystal Palace, both both players turned up for sorry to have a look at them. I was there on the Monday evening. They were both not taking on. Good heavens, what a terrible... I was there. <laughs> so was Bob Willis. We were all present. People recall the evening. I mean, I got a phone call a month ago asking me, did I, did I remember that I was a guinea pig who had to face Andy Roberts? Because <laughs> nobody else wanted to do it. No, I bet they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm talking about the seasoned professionals then. Right, so uh, sorry. At uh, first look at both of them, it didn't take, didn't take them. <laughs> what a terrible mistake that was! <laughs> well, um, it's like the man. Who, it's like the man who turned down the Beatles. Yes. Mm. Yes, both of them came to sorry first. This, this, uh, it must have been a uh, either a four or six weeks program they had at, at uh, Alfgrover Cricket School. When you were seventeen, the club asked you, didn't they? An absolutely. What I think is a shocking question to ask to, well, to any anybody of, of seventeen, and they didn't. They asked you that question, and they didn't ask it to Bob Willis, who was with you at the same time, didn't they? Well, we started the same day as uh, as professionals, and uh, so we had to do the physical. And this doctor, uh, Bob Bob went in before me, and I went in after him, but he was still around. And the guy asked me the question. It became a joke because he didn't ask him that. I don't think he asked anybody else. Uh, a question. Do you mind telling us what the question was? Yeah, have I had, <laughs> ever had any 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 um, uh, sexual disease? Did I ever had syphilis? What you're telling us and what is very sobering is the sort of you, it wasn't just you, of course, who had to put up with this kind of treatment. Or every young black man did in Britain at that time. I think is that right, Lonsdale? I don't think it's much different now. It happens, and people keep quiet about it. What that doctor said to me, it wasn't something I hadn't heard before from outside the cricket, and remarks being made about, you know, different parts of your body, your behavior, what you ate, what you drank. You know, it was, uh, I hate to say it was par for the course. Yeah? It's very shaming. It's shaming. So it's par for the, I think it's shocking I think that's a deeply unethical question for any doctor to ask to a, a 17-year-old who's not his patient. I think that is <laughs> very, very... I think that's deeply unethical. But nevertheless, you broke into the Surrey team. You had a pretty good career, didn't you? You were first-choice wicketkeeper for Surrey in the 1970s. You were capped. Yeah, but it wasn't, it wasn't like it sounds. You know, my being there annoyed quite a few people. I think the decision-makers... Uh, were highly annoyed of my presence. And it has to be remembered that, that a wicketkeeper, there's only one wicketkeeper in the side, the number of bowlers, the number of batsmen, but there's one wicketkeeper. And there is, the, if you go through the list of county cricketers, the number of first-class black wicketkeepers, there are very few. 
and especially the ones that were brought up or born in England. If you go through the list, you'll find very few that play the first-class game. I think, apart from myself, there was a young guy at Warwickshire, very good wicketkeeper. He was Piper. Keith yes. Piper. Yes. Uh, I can't recall any other that played regular first-class cricket. So it's a position not associated with African Caribbean. There was, you know, the fast bowler in it, fast bowling position is undoubtedly, and a few batsmen. Yeah, but wicket keepers are few and far between. When you got into the Surrey team, did you suffer any racism from the fellow your fellow players? Well, I you've got to remember I I'd been with them since I was fourteen years old. You know, uh, when I wasn't a professional, I used to rub shoulders with them during the winter in the indoor nets. I also played Colts games with quite a few of those guys that I when I became professional that were that were there. There's very few that didn't know me, and I didn't know. Very few. The banter was always there. Some of it rude, some wasn't. I mean, I although uh, some of the articles people probably read what I said, it's because of the questions, but also within the dressing room, there were some very good people whose company I enjoyed. But there were a few nasty ones who really I didn't quite take much notice of because if you know they're going to give you aggravation, you kept away from them. <laughs> I tell you what, I, it just surprised me this because I used to go to the Oval mm. in the uh, 70s as a young cricket fan and I always preferred the atmosphere in the Oval because in the, you know, it was much, it always felt much less stuffy, much, because Lords by then was becoming a bit all white, hadn't mm. been earlier, whereas the Oval always had a major West Indian fan base there and I used to go and mm. sit with them because they were so, you, the West Indians were so much more fun. Mm, mm. But and that's surprising, therefore, that the club itself you felt wasn't because uh, it felt very inclusive. You know the uh... well, the trouble. The trouble was it's uh, the decision makers. They were uh, not people that lived in that community. They were not people who mixed regularly with African Caribbean people. They knew very little about us, and they, it's a lot of stereotyping. Mm. They didn't know. Uh, what they were dealing with. I don't think they know now, apart from the fact I was saying now, they have a very good chief executive, a very good man. Uh, Richard Gould, yes, son of Bobby Gould. Right? Son of the footballer. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, son of Bobby it. Gould. Okay. Oh. And you know what Bobby Gould was like, so there we go. <laughs> Did not take prisoners. Yeah. I loved him. Yeah. And Richard Gould, Richard Gould has done a tremendous job for that club. I mean, mm-hmm. later down the road, we'll probably discuss about Ace. And now there's a story to Ace. The very sad thing that Peter just said about the atmosphere, the old and what took place there. September 2019, I uh, decided that uh, there's very little happening for black youngsters in and around the Oval. So I went to see the academy's manager because I thought there in the academy was the problem. Because if they're not coming through, something must be wrong there. I went and I saw the, um, the director of the academy, said there are problems, right? But he didn't give me an answer to how he's going to put the problems right. So I then saw the director of cricket, Alex Stewart. Yeah, we had a good chat, but he told me he's only in charge of the professional side of the game. So I then worked my way to Richard Gould. It was September 2019, I think. And um, about an hour and a half chat with him about club needing to do something for black youngsters. 
because I've taken on board the club's recent history and the population in and around the Oho, it does not look good for the county club. And he said, leave with me, Lonsdale, I will get back to you in a month. Within a month, we had that ACE program. Obviously, Ebony uh, was having a chat with him because she worked there as the... Uh, Ebony Rainsford-Brent, the yes. England cricketer, yeah. She was obviously speaking to him, and I went and I, I spoke to him. And within a month, they came up with this idea, the ACE program. Yeah. Um, remember, all of these things were written that young black people did not like cricket anymore. They are basketball players. They are footballers that they hated cricket. They advertised about three weeks, and they had about 150 applicants for trials. And I think they had to cut down on the numbers. And I think initially they wanted 16 players, but that extended to 25 because of the quality they found. And that program is there now. It's evolving into something different, but I will leave that to Ebony and those young people to run and to go in the direction that they think is necessary. You don't have to be a genius to work it out that he had to take a few chances and, and, get, and jump a few hurdles to get that program off the ground. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's going to pay great dividends, not only for Surrey, but for the other counties that take up something like it. Mm. Yeah, so long as they don't water it down. Has it been followed by other counties? Has the example been, um, been copied at all? I think Warwickshire are about to take up something similar. Mm. And I think they're over in Essex doing something. They want to do something with the young black women over there. Mm. But there are a few counties looking at it. Good. Yeah, but I think the story itself, if they keep that program going, they are going to get a few players out of that. Yeah, very good for them, and very, very good for Surrey. Now you left Surrey in 1977, didn't you? Yes. And, and in your interview, you said you'd had before that you'd had a terrible racist experience with, and the name really shocked me. Fred Titmus. Fred Titmus had. Very popular, long-serving player. (laughs) Quite a few. Yeah, it may be. But, you Mm. know, this whole thing with this race business, Mm. uh, it was known. It Mm. was known around the game. And I'm absolutely certain the journalists knew it. And some of the older ones are around. They need to speak up. When I turned up at Surrey, remember I was going to Wikikeeper Batsman. Mm. I wasn't new to them. I've always been around, and I think there was a reluctance to take me on, especially as a second wicketkeeper. But then I was told when I when I went there. Remember, I had a, I had a relationship with the um, with the then coach because I was there with him from the age of fourteen. Right. And um, I, I think I made it difficult for them not to take me on as a, a professional. We did a a tour to Pakistan, a kind of Middlesex. It was Middlesex and Surrey young cricketers combined. We went to Pakistan, December 68 to January 69. Mm-hmm. And I made nearly 500 runs in a month. Mm-hmm. And, and that tour was Bob Willis, Andrew Murta, who went to Hampshire, mm-hmm. John Rice, who went to Hampshire, yes. Graham Barlow, who played for Middlesex in England, mm-hmm. um, and a few others. So when I came back, uh, there was a problem because I did so well in the tour. They had to do something with me, so they took me on. <laughs> they couldn't say no, because I had the impression somebody else would have moved in. <laughs> so I was taken on, and as soon as I got there, I was told by the coach, we have got a problem with you. 
he was honest. He was a good man. I, I loved him. And uh, I realized whatever he told me to do was going to be for my good. So he coached me intensively about wicket keeping. Mm. He said, most of this stuff I'm going to teach you, you won't, you won't get anywhere else. Mm. So I listened to him and I improved quickly. But the problem was, uh, I think it was the president then, he wanted his son in that position. Oh. Oh. <laughs> and a few other people wanted other people in. And that one year I spent at the Oval, it was Fretis must try his level best to get rid of me, harassing me. And I realized he didn't want me there, right? And mm -hmm. I didn't want him to be telling me what to do because before he turned up there, I was fairly successful. So his whole thing was to undermine me. And the incident with Jonathan Agnew, we played a second level game because I was injured down at uh, Guildford. Uh, Fretis must came in there. And God, he was annoying, he was rude, he was racist. And I, I have to be honest, I was thinking about clocking him, right? Mm. Because he, he was annoying, he was rude, he was embarrassing me. When you say he was racist, what, what do you, Lonsdale, what did he do which was, or say which was racist? He was telling me about black this and black that and black the other, bastard and all this manner of stuff, right? He called you a black after bastard. A while, after a while, I wasn't mm. even listening to him, right? But Agnew jumped up and said, you need to stop it. You need to stop it. We had two good days before you turned up there. You're ruining it and you are rude. Right? And he told Agnew to shut up. When the wind rushed Dr. Tilbury in 1948, there was no black cricketer born in England in the first class game. There was not one black first class cricketer born in England. The only first-class cricketers were from the colonies. Some came to study and stayed. Others came to play in the leagues. But there were no British-born black first-class cricketer. The wind rush, although there were about between 30 and 50,000 black people in England before the boat turned up, there were footballers. There were rugby union players. In fact, there's a guy named Peters, played for England, I think, in 1912. There were rugby league players playing at the top of the game in the north. There wasn't a black British-born first-class cricketer. There weren't, to be fair, to be fair, there weren't many black footballers, and the experience of black footballers uh, was pretty dire, and the racism in football was terrible, as you, you know, no, they, they, yeah. they, it was said they... I could only play in the sun. I mean, ridiculous if you think about it now, because they they didn't have any guts, and because uh, you know the, the the managers were of that era, forties, fifties, sixties, even seventies, and it was only with Clyde Best, surely, that things started. It was the seventies when things started to change, and now the great players of English football, most you of them. Peter, Peter, yeah. what I'm saying is, they were black professional footballers. Mm. Yeah? Mm. They had them in Scotland. They had Watson. They had uh, Tull. They had them. They played. But there wasn't a black first-class cricketer. They could not find one. There wasn't one. And my, uh, my question is, why not at least one? On the boats that came in, there were a number of excellent cricketers that came on those boats. Excellent cricketers. But the counties would not take them. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. very few were taken. If you go through the, the, the list, 
You had your Carlton Forbes. You had your Tony Cordell. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Yep. That's very interesting. Uh, there was one at Derbyshire named Johnson. There was Danny Livingstone of Hampshire. Yes. Oh, he was wonderful for many, many years. Yes. Right. But, you know, those were the only first-class cricketers and they came into the country. Now, there were, there were many more than Danny because we played our cricket, our cricket was club cricket, and then you move straight to club cricket to the first-class game and then into test matches. And most of those players rub shoulders on a regular basis in club cricket with the test players. And I can tell you there were some very good ones that came on the boats that went for trials and they did not take them. To me... That is where the problem started. It did not start in the 80s because the only reason the number of black cricketers went up is that at the end of the 60s, there was a call that the game was dying. Mm -hmm. And the powers that be saw the benefits of overseas players through the, that Sunday game they used to play, Rothman's Cavaliers. But the locals weren't ever being given the opportunity to take over. And that's where that big... All, all the overseas players did was to cover the great big cracks that were present before they turned up. Mm. Can I ask what, what happened after your Surrey career? What did you do with your life? And did you have any involvement with cricket? No, I, I, I played a few matches at Spencer, Spencer right. Cricket Club in Wandsworth, mm. because at that club, they had a guy who used to play for the second eleven, who was a professional at, at the Oval, a guy named um, uh, Roy Lewis. Mm. Roy Lewis. Very, very nice guy. And he came and he asked me if I could play a few matches, and I did. Right. Uh, other than that, I went to a few of my old club matches. But my involvement in when I went back to the Africa Caribbean Cricket Association, I was asked to go to, a, I think there was a World Cup competition, a 50-over competition coming up in England. And um, the ICC, through Surrey, had a little get-together to try to attract African Caribbean spectators to the to the World Cup matches. So they had a kind of seminar trying to get our views as to how to get those African Caribbean spectators back. And uh, a number of us realized after that event that we needed to do something about our situation as um, cricket lovers to get the young people back in numbers, to get the spectators back and to uplift our cricket uh, once again. That's how I started with that. Lonster, what really shocks me about the experience you've described in your own career is that we see so many of the same problems uh, being talked about by, you know, the, in the recent testimonies of, of, um, of black cricketers that, been, that we've been reading really for the last, last year or so. We, we hear the same sort of thing from, you know, from Michael Carberry in particular. We hear testimonies of... Um, players who are victims of outright racism. We hear players being overlooked without good reason. We hear players you know, being forced out of the game um, by pressure without good reason. And we hear you know, a great deal about the, you know, the covert racism, covert discrimination you know, in lots of clubs and um, the demands on, um, on black players to prove that they're just very, very much better than everybody else before they even get a chance. And it's really quite depressing to hear that the same problems are, seem to be still around after 40 or 50 years. Well, I, I'm not surprised, but I would, I would say this. 
1999, there was a report and they promised to do everything possible for diversity and inclusiveness. That report had a number of recommendations from employment in administration about getting the black cricket more involved, black cricketers more involved in the game. It had a number of recommendations right. and they all spoke highly of the report and what they were going to do and what they were not going to do, including this uh, American guy, um, Marquez, Marquis? Marcuse. Brilliant writer. He's dead, unfortunately. Yes. Right. Now, now yeah. he had, a, he had a, a group that looked into it. I think he called it Clean Bowl or something like that. Bowl Out Racism, I think it was Bowl called. Out Racism. And they got hooked up and, and they did this report and the report came out and the recommendations came out. And I remember my, uh, my ex-teammate, uh, Mike Edwards. You remember him? Yes, Mike Edwards. Sorry, and he went into administration, didn't he? Right. Mike Edwards um, advised them to get, at a matter of urgency, black people into the administration of cricket. Now, the report came up with all these recommendations, and Tim Lamb said, we are going to do this, that, that, that and the other. Now, Black Lives Start uh, Matters, 2020. When we started looking at it, we asked, I asked the question, what happened with the report? To this day, they cannot and will not tell me. Lately, they told me that, don't worry about it because Cindy Butts is going to look into it, mm. right? Right. I don't want to say anything about a woman, but I don't understand why she has to look into it when most of what was recommended then are still the same things that are troubling us now. If you didn't deliver, say you didn't deliver and why you didn't deliver. So we know how we're going to get something that's better coming out of Cindy Butts report. They obviously did not implement it. The trouble is, it's the very set people who didn't implement it or did not implement that 1999 report successfully. They are running the show, the show still as to how to remedy what they didn't do successfully. Mm. My biggest fear of this report is something might happen, the same thing that happened to the last risk report that came out, the Tony Sewell report, mm. right? Right. When you handpick these people to do these jobs, they're going to give you what you, what you asked of them. Now, the ECB, on their website, up to July 2020, did not have one African-Caribbean employee at their headquarters in London. Is that right? In as far as recently as last year, right? They had, mm. when you look down the list, I think it was 89% white, 11% salvation, blacks less than one. I don't know what that is, right? Because right. 89 11 is 100, so I don't know what less than one is, right? Right? Mm. They did not, I remember going there once, and there was the, um, there was one black woman there, and she told me she was about to leave. They did not employ one black person in London. Their county boards, and the county boards being for the recreational cricket, and the professional one was for the county committees, right? Right. Very few black people in, are involved in those 18 counties committees. Very few. Very, very few. The county boards are the same. If there is a, a place for a new member, they get people of similar ilk. In December 2016, I went on the ECB uh, website and I found coaches. One of the criteria for becoming a coach, uh, for applying for to become a level three coach, you had to be South Asian. 
What? Right? And it got me mad. Hmm. I want to know what nonsense an organization will put on this website. Hmm. So I wrote to them and I met Keith Tomlins. Keith Tomlins was, the char- was in charge of coaching. I met him in February and I asked him, how many level three coaches do they have? And he says, he didn't know, but he's going to find out. He did, and he told me there's 1.7% of the level three coaches were of Africa, Caribbean heritage. And I said, what number, does, what number is that? He said, it was 21 qualified out of then 2,300. Hmm. He was shocked about the number, and he was in charge. So I said, fine. Why don't we work to get the numbers up? And during those months, we got three coaches through. Two were brothers Mm. and another guy. And one of the brothers, he'd applied three times and they turned him down at the interview to go to take the course. Eventually, he went, he took the course and he he and his brother were the star pupils. And they had them in the ECB magazine showing how good they were. At the end of October, October 2017, the new guy came in, John Neal. And I was trying to get out of him how he was going to increase the numbers. He dismissed me. I said, fine. I need to give the man a chance to do what he thinks is right in his new job. Three years later, I asked him, how many more have we got as level three coaches? He could not tell me. He said they weren't collecting figures, and the figures that um, Keith Tomlins gave to me was not right. So I said, fine. Well, tell me how many African Caribbean heritage level three coaches there are. They would not tell me. All they kept telling me, we've got BAME coaches, black and minority ethnic. That covers everything. Hmm. Yeah. I'll tell you what we can do, Richard. Yeah. We can approach the ECB yes. and ask that question. Yeah, I think but we I, should do let, that. Let, let me tell you what he's done since. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I gave, I knock him, I knock him now, right? But I also have to give him credit because since I've been um, criticizing him, by the time Black Matters uh, started affecting what was going on up there, they were well on their way to doing something for the level yeah. three coaches. Right. Uh, he got a, a bursaries. Um, because the fee went up from 700 to 2,000 pounds or 3,000 pounds course. But he is, he, since then, he's given 10 bursaries for 95% of the cost of the course. And I think he wrote to me two days, three days ago to say they've, they've, they're about to do something better for the level four coaches. Mm. This is great news. Yes. So I have to credit him. But what it has taught me is that whatever they come up with, you've got to keep an eye on it. Because in that 1999 report, in it, they were supposed to, on a regular basis, check to see what was happening. Nothing happened. And again, my question is, what happened to the 1999 report? Now, when the numbers of black youngsters started dropping out to the county game, the ECB is in the business of cricket. I, I use the analogy, if you are running a business and your good customers stop coming and patronizing your business, it becomes a problem to you, or it should, unless you've got ulterior motives. You don't want them there. Yeah. That's the question. Do they really want black youngsters playing professional cricket? I find it a very, very powerful story of the Haringey Cricket College 
Yeah. Tell us how that started, what great cricketers came through it, and what's happened to it. Well, my knowledge of it is that somebody in the locality came up with the idea of having these youngsters coach the cricket and also do some educational qualification, uh, B-Tech, etc. You had Bernie Grant in the area. I didn't think many people liked him because of his left-wing leanings. And the ECB contributed, and they also got some money from the local authority. And right. they kept producing these cricketers. Piper, yep. Griffith, I think Rollins, Jax. There are quite a few of them. There were 12. It was a successful program. Even if the local authority pulled out, it's a successful program. And they were producing good first-class cricketers, more than the local clubs. Why didn't the ECB put money into it? Let me say this. The big white clubs have never produced black first-class cricketers. What I uh, would like to say to you, Lonsdale, is we only touched on so many of these really serious issues. Mm. Uh, and we've been incredibly lucky to have you on. And it's something which Richard and I are committed to staying with. We can put questions to the ECB. Yep. We can put questions to the cricket clubs. This is a campaign we both we really care about. Which we really, and, I, and it's because it really matters to the future of cricket in this country and it matters to the future of this country mm. that all people of whatever race or class get an equal chance. I mean, we were, And so thank you very much for coming to talk to us. And I think I'm sure we'll be inviting you back uh, for several more innings because mm. you've got to bowl your bouncers and take those stumpings off the establishment, mm. which is determined to keep cricket for one class and one race only. Mm. OK, let me, say, let me say thank you for having me. Lonsdale, it's been, a, um, it's been a very powerful experience listening to you on the podcast. This is a very, very deep agenda you've presented. You've presented so much hidden history of uh, English cricket and um, the persistent problems of, um, you know, of race and discrimination that, that are still with it. And this is um, a cause, as Peter said, that we're not going to let up on. And um, indeed, we may have, have to have you back for a second or even a, a third innings because there's so much more to talk about. But for now, it has to be goodbye for me, Richard Heller, in an absolutely blazing southeast London. Well, I've said just a tip of the iceberg. <laughs> we'll have to go deeper into the iceberg. Well, yeah, we'll yeah, have to right. get the bits under the surface, too. Thank you, fans. Thank you for having me. And thank you for coming on. It's goodbye from me, Peter O'Born, in a sun-drenched Wiltshire. Take care.